tonight at West Orange Church of Christ, and uh, we're going to continue our series on looking forward, conquered or conquerors. Um, our guest speaker tonight really isn't much of a guest to West Orange, but there may be a few here tonight who do not know Jay Culpepper, uh, recently married to Gina. It's good to have her here tonight as well. And for those that don't know Jay, he is the son of Ken and Kathy Culpepper, who are members here. Ken serves as one of our elders. His grandfather, Clinton Culpepper, and his, his wife, the late Louise, were his grandparents. His sister, Wendy, is also a member here at West Irwin. And through marriage, he is now related to the Womack family. And so, uh, I say all that to say this. When Jay is at West Sherwood Church of Christ, he had best be on his best behavior. But I will tell you this, as far as I'm concerned, Jay is a dear friend and a true uh, brother in Christ. And we have come to really appreciate and love, and, and I, he's, so, he's so supportive of our work here. He loves West Irwin. He grew up here, and so he knows this place uh, very, very well. Before leaving here, he worked uh, with Donnie, Carnath, and myself and others on Sunday mornings across the street at the Benevolent Center where we hold a worship each Sunday morning, and he, he would just do whatever he was asked to do. He could teach, he could preach, he would lead singing, he would lead prayers, he would wait on the Lord's table, you, you name it, he could read scripture. He, he can do it all, and we're, we're, we're blessed to have him, and he is missed. Uh, Jay attended Brown Trail School of Preaching. 2009 through 2011. Um, he is now preaching at Greer Avenue uh, Church of Christ in Pittsburgh, Texas. Um, and he also works as a public safety officer at UT North Hospital located on Highway 271 as you head toward Gladewater. So he's a busy, busy man. going to start this evening by singing number 454. Uh, you'll have to take a songbook, and it is my fault. I failed to turn in songs for tonight. I, I remembered about 20 minutes before I was to be here tonight. So we'll just use songbooks tonight, do it the old-fashioned way. Number 454, Rock of Ages. I told the sound booth people it is my fault, and I will take responsibility for that. Following this song will be led in opening prayer by our dear brother Robert Lee. And after uh, Jay speaks to us this evening, Danny Skipper will dismiss us in prayer. We're thankful for your attendance tonight, and I know we're going to be blessed by the hearing of God's word through Jay. 
bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are so humble in your presence. The gifts and the blessings that you afford for us are unending. And we're so undeserving. But we love you for your grace and for the son that you gave for us that we might have everlasting life in Christ. We pray tonight as uh, the many of our number that are bereaved and, and have so much sickness in our, in our family, we pray, Father, that you'll watch over them and, and uh, bless them as you can. We're grateful to have Jay tonight to bring us a message from your word. And we pray that you'll be with him and uh, guide him as he speaks to us. So many things in our world that are, seem to be going opposite of what we want. But Father, we know that you're in control. And we know that if we follow you and follow Christ's footsteps, we'll be on the right track on that narrow road. We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jerry comes and speaks to us. Let's all stand. We'll sing number 452. Number 452. We're going to do something a little unusual. We are not going to start with verse 1. We're going to start with verse 2. We're going to sing verses 2 and 3. And I want us to sing verse 2 especially because of our theme this summer. Part of verse 2 says, When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, those times we feel we're about conquered. But then we also sing by the living word of God. I shall prevail. We don't have to be conquered when we lean on God and His Word. Verses 2 and 3. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, with Some of you are very nervous right now. 
And you should be, but I, I want you to relax a little bit because this will be the fastest three hours you've ever been through. So just, just relax with all that. Um, my life today is literally a dream. And I wake up every day wondering if it's going to be over now. And yet God keeps blessing and blessing and blessing. And one of the things that you're going to learn about tonight from the book of Ruth is that when you keep looking forward, when you keep going, no matter what's going on, no matter, no matter the trials, the tribulations, and the pain, no matter what happens, that eventually, eventually God makes himself known. Thomas, Thomas Edison went through 10,000 failed experiments before finding the correct filament inside of the light bulb. When somebody asked him uh, how he felt about the 10,000 failures, he said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I just figured out 10,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. Muhammad Ali was asked one time how many sit-ups he did in training. He said, I don't know. He said, I only start counting when they hurt. Helen Keller was blind and deaf and earned college degrees, wrote books, and inspired millions. And she was once asked, what is worse than being blind? Her answer, to have sight but no vision. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, fly. But if you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by all means, keep going. Napoleon Hill, the architect of 20th century motivational speaking said, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, the mind can achieve. Tonight we're going to talk about moving forward through adversity, moving forward through pain, through trauma. And genetically speaking, the way your mind is hardwired it is hardwired to keep you safe. It is hardwired to keep you from pain. The problem with the mind and the way that it's hardwired is the mind doesn't know the difference between constructive pain and destructive pain. It doesn't know that in order to grow, it has to go through pain. And that's progress. You have to go through some type of pain when you're going through, when you're trying to achieve progress. You're going to come at a point in time in your life when it's going to be the darkest time in your life. And you're going to go through a valley. You're not going to know when it's going to hit. You're not going to know when it's going to happen, what that valley specifically is but you're going to go through the valley. And at that point in time, 
you are going to absolutely feel that God has abandoned you. It's not that he has abandoned you. You're going to feel that way. You're going to wake up and all you're going to feel is one word and that's pain and you're going to feel like there's absolutely no hope at all. And when you get to that point, all you have to do is one thing in order to get out of it and that's to look forward. You take one step and then you take the next step after that. And as we dive into the book of Ruth, you're going to note that that's exactly what Ruth did. Now, let me, let me set this up for you. Naomi had a great reputation. Naomi was a great, great woman. But when it comes to what was going on right then and there, Naomi was no help. Her reputation was a help to Ruth, but that was it. So let me give you the setting. The time frame here is inside of the book of Judges. That's the time frame. And if you've done any studying in the book of Judges, you can understand why everything is pretty much whacked out. Joshua's dead. And right after Joshua dies, there's basically no spiritual real leader inside of this entire community of millions of people. And so everybody is pretty much doing whatever's right in their own eyes. All through the book of Judges, you have the same thing over and over again. They're, they're serving God, but then they fall into idolatry and God puts them under bondage inside of an area nation. And then he raises up a judge and they, they get out. And then years later, it's the same thing. It's a process over and over and over and over and over again. That's the time frame inside of what's going on. So the setting is the time of the judges. Most of Israel has been corrupted by idolatry, and there's famine in the land. Now, you read all of this in the first part of Ruth. There's famine in the land. Naomi's family decides to move over to Moab. That's the only way to survive for them. Naomi's husband dies. And then 10 years later, Naomi loses her two sons. And that's when, that's all in the first seven verses, guys. That's when she decides, I'm going to move back to Judah. Now, in the text, when you look at this, you're not seeing Naomi going, okay, I'm going to go over to Judah and I'm going to start over. I honestly believe, even though that I cannot prove this at all. I know you, you feel really secure when a preacher says that, right? I really believe this, but I can't prove it. I really believe she was going back to Judah to be around people she knew in order to just waste away. Because by the time they get over to Judah... All you hear about is what Ruth is doing, and Naomi is constantly talking to her friends about, don't call me Naomi, which, by the way, means pleasant. She says, call me bitter. But at the same time, can you blame her? Everybody is going to process trauma and grief differently. Now, whether right or wrong, that's up to you, but the woman lost her husband 10 years later. It loses both of her boys. 
that's enough to make anybody crack. And now she's got Ruth with her, and the only reason she has Ruth with her is because Ruth will not go home to her people. Ruth literally clings to her after Naomi tries to send her away, and she says no, and then we all know the famous verse, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you die, I will die, all that. That is in the first part of this book. That is the setting. Now let's talk about the struggle. Naomi and Ruth have no husbands. They are females in this land that is literally run by men. Which means there's no earthly protectors. They ended up traveling from Moab all the way to Judah, which, by the way, is a treacherous route. There's thieves and murderers who hang out in the valleys all the time. Yet they made it. There's no protectors. There's no earthly providers. They lived in a time when the men went out and worked in the field. The women were attending basically to the kids in the household. That's basically what the the law was. There was no earthly legal representation. Ladies, if you wanted a lawyer, if you wanted somebody to represent you to the town, guess what? You've got to find a man to do that because women don't sit in the gates. Women don't decide legal stuff. Not at that particular point in time in Israel. Ruth is going to a land she has never been. You have to remember she is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. As far as we know, she had never been out of Moab. She's going to a land she's never been. She has no knowledge of the customs, and you figure that out when she's reading when you read through the book. Because she's asking Naomi question after question. What do I do about this? What do I do about that? And even Naomi notices, I just hit that mic. Did y'all, did y'all realize that? I just, I just hit that mic. Normally I hit the mics that are literally on the podium because I talk with my hands all the time. I actually hit the mic. on. That was nuts. I have never done that before. Chalk one up on that one. She has no knowledge of the customs. She is noticeably different. She does not look like an Israelite. She is constantly keeping Naomi sane while mourning the loss of her husband. Think about that for a second. You learn, you learn in, in chapter 3. In chapter 3 of this book, when she's talking to Boaz, when they finally meet... And Boaz is basically telling her, hey, I want you to glean in this field. You gather, you gather everything you need in my field. And he's basically saying, I'm going to protect you. And she falls to his feet and she says, why has my Lord found favor in me? And he says, because of Naomi. Apparently, Naomi had told Boaz all that Ruth had done for her. He said, you cared for the dead, you cared for her, and you haven't left her side. And that's why I'm blessing you in this way. Naomi, as far as what I can tell in the text, is a wreck. 
understandably so. Understandably so. Naomi and Ruth are poor. Naomi had no plan. There was no plan of going back to Judah and going back and starting some type of a business or or going back to family land. We have no mention of that. We have no idea where they're staying for that matter. Maybe the old house was still there. It literally looks like Naomi is going back to waste away and die. They are poor. There is no indication of financial stability. There is no indication of land owned in Judah. Now, later on in the book, you you learn that Naomi actually has rights to land, but the land's not in Judah. It's over in Moab. Now, how they swung that, I have no idea. That's just what the text says. But these are all the struggles that they are going through. And if you've ever lost anybody close to you, you understand what is going on here. You understand where Ruth is and you understand where Naomi is. Now that's not to say that Ruth is not mourning the death of her husband and the death of her father-in-law. But somebody, as they say, has to pay the bills, right? Somebody has to get up and do something. And that is the turning point of this entire When you look at Ruth chapter 2 and verse 2, that is the turning point of what is going on in this whole story. In Ruth chapter 2 and verse 2, Ruth goes to Naomi and she says, please let me, she's asking permission, let me go glean in the field and hopefully I will find favor in somebody's sight. Now, I want to clarify something here. She is not looking for a husband. (laughs) We automatically think she's going out there where she's going to work hard. Somebody's going to notice her, and she's going to try to pick up a husband or something like that. She's not going after a husband. This whole idea of finding favor is the fact that she doesn't own any land. She doesn't own any crops. But if she goes out and works and she does what she knows she can do, then somebody will let her keep doing it in their field. And maybe, just maybe, they can negotiate a way for her to either get a wage or to keep the crop or or whatever it is, the situation. You know what Ruth does? She basically tells herself, and this is not written down in the text, but she basically tells herself, I have to do this. I have to move forward. This is number three, what we call the solution. Now, all of you who are getting excited that we're not even to seven yet, and I'm on point number three, there's 16 points. Just kidding, there's four. But I was, I was telling my wife earlier, I said, you know, I'm kind of nervous about this one because this is a very important book, and everybody knows I can talk for 30 minutes about absolutely nothing. It's not the talking part. It's actually giving you what you really need to hear. That's the whole thing. All right, so number three, the solution. Ruth goes to work. Ruth goes to work. The end. Lesson told. 
Ruth goes to work. She's looking to find favor. Favor in this situation is basically she's looking to see if somebody will have pity on them so that she can collect enough in order for them to eat because there is no plan. She went to glean in the field after the reapers, Ruth chapter 2 and verse 3. Ruth is determined to provide for Naomi. The greatest determination that will ever come out of you is when your back is against the wall and you feel like everything has fallen apart and you've got nothing left. When you feel like you have nothing anymore, that's when you discover what real determination is. Because determination is telling life, no, this is not how my story ends. And that's exactly where she's at. She's saying, no, I'm not going to let my mother-in-law waste away. I refuse to do that. No, this is not where our story ends. Something has to happen. Something good has to happen, so she goes to work. Ruth decides to look forward. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I know some of you are getting excited because I'm using the New Testament now. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid up hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was... Ruth doing. She was deciding to look forward, and as Christians, that's what we do. No matter what, we look forward. She knows that nothing can change the past. She cannot bring her husband back from the dead. She can't bring her father-in-law back from the dead. There's nothing she can do about that, but what she has decided to do is to look forward on hope. Ruth decides to hope against hope. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 18, it talks about Abraham. And when Abraham is told that he is going to be the father of many, having no child, he did what was called hoping against hope. That means the outside world tells you it can't happen. It's absolutely impossible But Abraham said, no, God said it was going to happen, so therefore I'm going to hope against hope. Even when common sense says it's impossible, we must say with God all things are possible. That's Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26. When the entire world is saying not possible can't be done, then we 
turn around and we say, if it's the Lord's will, it's going to happen. When the world says there is no more steps to take, we must take one more. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. That verse says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. The power of God that works within us. So when there's no more steps to take, you still take one more. You don't stop moving forward. You keep going. And it doesn't matter if you have a plan or not. Some of you are really confused at this point. Well, don't you have to plan before you move forward? No. Sometimes it's God's plan, and he doesn't preview you to what his plan is. And you just know what you're supposed to do. Ruth was in a situation to where food creates and maintains life. They needed food. She needed to work. She asked for permission. She's not in her homeland at all. She goes to work. That's the turning point of everything because she goes out to work and she ends up working in Boaz's field. Boaz looks at his workers and he says, Hey, who is that woman over there? And they said, Well, that's Ruth. She came to us and asked us if she could glean in the field. We said, yes, no problem. And he goes, oh, okay. He walks over to her. By the way, this is not him flirting, okay? That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> hey, there you go. That's when you laugh. All right. You're on cue now. Good deal. This was not him making any type of advance at all. He's an incredible guy. Boaz is an incredible guy. He goes over to her and he says, hey, he said, I know who you are. You stay in my field. And he tells her, he said, I, I've instructed my workers not to touch you. I've instructed them not to insult you or anything like that. You've got to understand, she's a Moabite woman, and they know that she is. So guess what? You're going to have a little racism going on there. And he's protecting her. Then he tells her, he said, hey, if you, if you need any water, go over there. They'll draw it for you, whatever you need. And, and what I want you to do is don't leave my field. And basically that's so he could protect her. He said, stay with my, my maidservants. And of course, that's when she falls at his feet and says, why have, you found, why have I found favor in your sight? And he tells her. The solution to this issue was her going to work. Anytime we have a problem, we go to work. And a lot of times what happens, and this is probably more in our culture than any other culture that I've ever seen in my life, and I've been to several different cultures around the world. We have a tendency of looking at a problem or a situation and crying about it or moaning or complaining about it and not really focusing on problem-solving ability. 
other cultures have a tendency to, okay, we got a problem, now what's the solution to that problem? And that's exactly what we have to do. We have to go to work. What's the benefits from going to work? Ruth becomes known to Boaz. Think about that for a second. If she would have stayed inside the house, if she would have gone out to maybe beg in the street, or worse, when me and Gina were actually talking about this particular lesson, uh, I've got time, so I'll go ahead and tell you this. Uh, Davey had called me uh, almost a month ago and said, hey, can you, can you speak in our series? And I said, yeah, I can actually do that. And he said, well, he said, uh, the theme is looking forward, conquer, be conquered. Uh, and uh, we need you to speak on the book of Ruth. And I laughed, and I said, that's funny, because me and Gina just got done with that book. We had just finished reading it. And one of the things that she had pointed out when, when I was putting this together and we were discussing my notes and all that, she, she said, you know, what's interesting is, is most women back in that time, if they were widowed and they needed income, they turned to prostitution. Out of, out of necessity. And by the way, obviously we think that's just horrible, and morally it is, but when you have an entire society that's built on that, it's, it's a normal thing. Ruth didn't do that. And she was raised in a pagan society. And if you don't think she was raised in the pagan society inside of Moab, then you can listen to the words of Naomi when Naomi is trying to shove her off. She says, no, you go to your people and go to your gods, plural. Go back to your gods. She knew she was raised in a paganistic society. And there's a lot of stuff in paganism that, of course, inside the church that we just don't talk about. It's absolutely disgusting. I don't want to turn your stomach. Most of you probably have had supper already. That's how bad it is. But that's how credible this woman is. She didn't go out and work the street. She didn't go begging. She went to work. Boaz very quickly becomes her protector. You find that in chapter 3. He becomes her protector. Boaz is rich, well-known, and honorable. Nobody crosses Boaz. You don't try to steal from Boaz. Boaz has everybody's respect in the area. If Boaz says, hey, you leave this woman alone, everybody's going to leave her alone. Boaz becomes a provider. He instructs Ruth to take whatever her and Naomi need. Now I want to talk about Boaz just for a second because I found this in this, this research. It didn't even dawn on me, but I found this. There was a time in which that the Israelites were attacking Jericho. I'm going to assume that most of you know this story. They march around the wall, the walls come down, and there's one family that ends up surviving that siege, and that's Rahab and her family. Rahab, according to the genealogy, is Boaz's mother. Isn't that not the coolest thing? 
I, I was sitting at my desk and I started doing this with the pages and going back and forth. It's Boaz's mother. So we know the timeline here is actually at the beginning part of Judges, but it's inside of the Judges. That's who Boaz is. And inside the, sto- the, the story, Boaz is actually older now. Because when the idea of marriage comes into this, this idea of these two, he says, blessed are you because you didn't choose somebody basically your own age. You're choosing somebody who's much older and wiser and all that. So you have, <laughs> I want to say Salmon, because that's kind of what his name looks like in the text. So you have S-A-L-M-O-N, okay? My wife gets on to me all the time because I, I want to say salmon. And she says, no, it's salmon. And we argue all the time about if the L is silent or not, but I really can't argue because she's got a master's degree in English. So I really can't do that. But anyway, you've got salmon, <laughs> who is the father of Boaz. And his mother had this reputation back in the day of being a harlot but apparently they did an excellent job at raising this boy. Because Boaz is a godly man. In fact, when he greets his workers in the field, he greets them by saying, God be with you on this fine day. And their reply is, God bless you. That was the normal thing for them. So Boaz is not only rich, he's not only got a lot of land, he is an absolute godly man. And he becomes their provider. Ruth becomes Boaz's wife. And he redeems her late husband's name. So let's talk about that for a second. I got to go into college professor mode now to tell you the history of this. When Ruth comes back from the field, she talks to Naomi and says, uh, hey, I've got all of this, and I met a man named Boaz. And Naomi says, hey, he's, he's part of our family. He's part of our kinsmen. And Ruth's like, great. So she tells her, she says, okay, this is what you do. He's going to be down at the threshing floor. And by the way, the threshing floor is actually not going to be in that area of Bethlehem. It's actually going to be down in the valley because that's where all the winds are. Because the, the threshing part is when you're actually throwing the grain up and you're letting the chaff go, uh, the, the chaff go uh, with the wind, and then the grain comes back down. This rich guy is actually doing that. He's a hard worker. So she tells him, she said, hey, he's going to be down at the threshing floor, so what I want you to do, I want you to be... Smelling real nice and looking real nice and all that. And after, watch him, and when he finally lays down to go to sleep, I want you to uncover his feet and lay at his feet. And Ruth, honestly, almost has no idea what's going on. And she said, okay, I'm going to do it. Well, Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and he says, who are you? And he goes, I'm your, she says, I'm your servant, Ruth. And he knows exactly what's going on. And that's when he says, bless you. For you have chosen somebody older than you instead of somebody younger. 
that was in their culture a proposal of marriage from the female side. Now, none of us understand that. And we would actually, in our modern time, think that maybe that was a little bit inappropriate to be laying down next to somebody you're not married to yet, especially at their feet. That's kind of disgusting. But that was their way of the, the female proposal. And so in order to preserve any, preserve any type of uh, the, the, the dignity of her, sorry, my brain's working faster than my mouth is, in order to preserve this reputation of hers, he says, okay, this is what I want, I want to do. I'm going to give you a bunch of barley, and then early in the morning I want you to get up, leave, and go home, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to redeem you, but this is what happens. This is a very, very good man. He says there's actually a closer relative than I, and I'm going to go talk to that guy, and hopefully he will redeem you, but if he doesn't redeem you, then I'm going to redeem you. So she, hey, there's a backup plan there. And this whole idea of redeeming inside the Levitical law, when you had somebody and the spouse died, the, the male died, the next of kin was supposed to take his place and then they were supposed to raise up children by that man's name. So in other words, if you came into this family and you had a child with this woman, that, that child was not to be considered necessarily yours, but the late husband's child. And there's a lot of men in Israel that actually had a problem with that because they wanted the boy to be theirs and they wanted the girl to be theirs, but it wasn't going to be theirs. So he goes to the man. He finds him. He says, hey, I want you to sit with me in the, the city gate. He gathers some of the elders together. And he tells him, he says, listen, he said, uh, Naomi's land is up for sale. Now, this is not in, in this area. This is over in Moab. Naomi's land's up for sale. And by the way, that land is the husband's land and the two boys' land. She actually doesn't have any rights over it, but you've got to go through her in order to get it. It's for sale, and you're next of kin. Would you like to buy it and, and redeem this family? And he goes, yeah, I'd like to redeem this family and take that land. He goes, okay, well, in order to do that, you also have to take Ruth as your wife and raise up children by her late husband. And he goes, no, that's, that's going to mess up my inheritance. And the guy turns around. We have no idea what the guy's name is. The guy turns around, and he says, but you can redeem her. And having everybody around there, all the elders around, this was the weirdest thing in the world when I read this. Their custom of that day, this is not in the Levitical law, the custom of that day was when you allowed somebody else to redeem for you, you took off your sandal and you handed it to the other person. And everybody witnessed him taking off his sandal and handing it to Boab, saying, you can redeem. Boaz had to go through a lot of hurdles in order to do what he thought was the right thing. At no point do we have any indication at all that he was what you might call interested in Ruth in that way. He just wanted to make sure that Ruth and Naomi were taken care of. 
And then what happens is he ends up marrying. So Ruth becomes Boaz's wife and he redeems her late husband. Ruth becomes the mother of Obed. Now let me give you another. This is just so neat. Obed is the son of Boaz now. Obed is the grandfather of King David. And you can double check that in the genealogy over in Matthew. Because you have Rahab and Ruth are the only two women that are actually mentioned in that genealogy because of the significance. Rahab was not an Israelite. She is the mother of Boaz. But then you have Ruth. Uh, Ruth is not, she's, she's a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite and she becomes the father of Obed, which becomes the, fa- the grandfather of King David. And then on top of all that, Ruth ends up being in the genealogy of Christ. <sighs> I've been waiting three weeks to get that out. Ruth, by looking to the future, becomes an ancestor to the Savior. An ancestor. The turning point of the book is Ruth chapter 2 and verse 2. She asked to go to work. There was no plan. She did not know this land. She did not know the custom. She did not know the fears. By the way, I don't think she had time in order to entertain any fears. You ever notice that when you're down and out and destitute and something needs to get done and so you just decide to get it done, fear goes out the window. By the way, if you want to know what uh, fear is, it's false evidence appearing real. It's, It's not real. Danger is real, but fear is projecting something into the future that might hurt you or destroy you for that matter. Another great saying that we have in our house, it's actually on a placard. We bought this at a fair in in Kilgore. Uh, It says, worry is a misuse of imagination. That's pretty good. I didn't come up with that. I wish I did. But that's pretty good. Worry is a misuse of imagination. Did she have time to sit around and worry? No, she went to work. work. There is a very good chance that we can look at Ruth and said and say that she saved her mother-in-law. Because the moment Ruth comes back from the field and tells Naomi, I met a man, his name's Boaz, then you see in the scripture where Naomi just kind of lights up. And the way the book ends, obviously talking about the genealogy situation, but the way the book ends is that Naomi has her grandson, Obed, in her arms, and somebody walks by and says, Blessed be the Lord because he has given Naomi a child. 
not only affect your life, not only make a turning point for your life, it will make a turning point for somebody else that's close to you. Because somebody is going to see the type of life you're living. And if they see that you are bound and determined, you have burned your boats, as they say, you are looking forward, you're not looking behind, you're not letting anything from the past discourage you or get you down, they get inspired by that. You have no idea how many people that you can actually change their lives. You have no idea. As Christians, we have no idea. This is the hardest part of Christianity because we we have absolutely no idea how many seeds that we've planted. We have no way of calculating seeds. We can calculate baptisms, right? We see somebody baptized in the water, there's one or two or three or whatever. But that's actually after they've accepted Christ as their Savior, they've repented of their sins. They've confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then they've allowed their self to be baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of their sins. But we have no way of calculating how many seeds, how many seeds we've planted. And I am here to tell you tonight, you're planting more seeds than you realize. The question is, is what type of seed are you planting? type of seed are we planting, folks? Are we living our lives in such a way that we are working? We are doing our best to serve God to the best of our ability? Or are we not? And other people are being influenced by either our laziness or our defiance towards God. Everybody is watching. Everybody is watching. I want to encourage you tonight to look forward because God has given you every opportunity. God has given you everything you need according to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. He's given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. You got everything and you didn't even ask for it. He instilled it in you. And the best thing that you can do is to move forward. Move forward. Don't look back. Move forward. Decide to work and look forward. Don't worry about what the world is doing and just look forward. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 17 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the dark forces. It's against the wickedness of this world. So it's not your neighbor that is your enemy. It's Satan that is your enemy. And the only way you fight him is you don't. You give that fight to God. You give everything over to God. Whatever it is, you give it to him and he will take care of it. You don't extinguish flaming arrows of Satan. God does. The only way to do that is to turn everything over to Him. Always move forward. Skipper.
Pray with me. Dear Father, we come before you thanking you for all of the great things that you do in our lives each and every day. And Father, we're thankful for the time that we have like tonight when we can meet together and fellowship with one another and encourage each other and learn encouraging words from your scripture that will help us to truly be the conquerors that you would have us to be in this life. We look around, Father, in our country and sometimes we get discouraged. We see the problems that exist and Father, we pray that you will help us to realize that you intend for us to be part of the solution to those things. You, your son Christ came to reconcile the world to you and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And by our example of honoring you and developing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, Father, we are examples to others and we encourage others to follow you and we help to solve the problems in the world by serving you because you are the solution. We pray that you'll be with us as we leave this place. Bless each of us and help us, Father, to find ways to bless those around us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.